Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Philosophical Investigations, the monthly podcast all about philosophy with no prior knowledge required. In this episode, we'll be picking up where we left off with conceptual analysis and learning how to form an argument out of multiple statements. Finally, we'll take a look at the different branches of philosophy and what topics they talk about. To begin, let's recap briefly on what we went over in episode one. When philosophers do philosophy, a large part of it is analysing concepts, breaking them down into their constituent parts and seeing which parts are necessary and which parts aren't. Once we have all the necessary components of a concept, we call them jointly sufficient. Plato believed that justification, belief and truth were all necessary and jointly sufficient for knowledge, for example. We now know that he's wrong about that. So let's take a new example. A bachelor is an unmarried man. This is a classic example in philosophy. By understanding the word bachelor, you can know that the sentence as a whole is true. A bachelor is a man, of course, because the female equivalent is a maiden, or in modern usage, a bachelorette. Likewise, a bachelor is one who is unmarried, as a married man is called a husband, a divorced man, a divorcee, or ex-husband. So we have our prima facie, philosophically rigorous definition of bachelorship. Being both unmarried and a man are necessary and jointly sufficient for being a bachelor. Being just unmarried or just a man are both independently necessary, but not independently sufficient. Conceptual analysis as a powerful tool in cases such as this one because we can begin to make claims about the world using our analyses. Take, for example, the sentence, John is a bachelor. This is a claim about the world, not merely concepts. We are saying that John belongs to a group of people known as bachelors. But how do we know this? We know this because we know John, and we know that he is a man who has never been married. If someone asked us to support our claim that John is a bachelor, we might say something like this. If a man is unmarried, then he is a bachelor. John is an unmarried man, therefore John is a bachelor. What we have just done with the above is create an argument. This argument is the simplest form of argument, known as modus ponens, which is Latin for the way that affirms. The argument is formed of a major premise, the if-then statement, which we call a conditional. The conditional statement breaks down further into the antecedent, literally the bit that comes before, the if, and the consequent, the bit that comes after, the then. It's the major premise, the conditional, that shows the impact of conceptual analysis on how we can do philosophy. We can expand the conditional to see better how it works. Because being a man and being unmarried are necessary and jointly sufficient for being a bachelor, if a man is unmarried, then he is a bachelor. The conditional relies on the conceptual analysis, the relationships of necessity and sufficiency that we talked about in the last episode, to form part of an argument. The second part of the argument is the minor premise. John is an unmarried man. This is where modus ponens gets its name. We are affirming the antecedent of the conditional in the major premise. By doing this, 
we are setting up the conclusion, the final part of the argument, since if the antecedent is true, the consequent must also be true, and that's our conclusion. John is a bachelor. Let's review that before moving on. We have the major premise of the argument, which is a conditional comprising the antecedent, if a man is unmarried, and the consequent, then he is a bachelor. Next, we have our minor premise, which just affirms the antecedent, John is an unmarried man, and finally the conclusion. Therefore, John is a bachelor. Put all the pieces together, and we have modus ponens, argument by affirmation. Now we need to check if our argument works. We do this by first looking at the argument as a whole, then going into each premise to see if they hold up. First, the argument as a whole. Modus ponens is a logically valid form of argument, which means that the premises do lead to the conclusion. This is true of all modus ponens arguments because of the way they are set up. If A, then B, A is true, and therefore B is true, will always be logically valid. However, this doesn't mean that the argument works. It just means that we haven't made any mistakes in our reasoning. It is logically valid, but not necessarily sound. A sound argument is one in which the argument is logically valid and the premises are all true. And that's the goal. To find out if the premises are true, we just need to inspect each one individually. First, the major premise. If a man is unmarried, then he is a bachelor. We could go into depth regarding these concepts, such as what a man is, but for the sake of simplicity we won't. Let's say that this is true. We have analysed the concept of a bachelor, as we did at the beginning of the episode, and we have determined that being a man and never having been married are both independently necessary and jointly sufficient conditions for bachelorship. Brilliant! Our major premise holds. Our minor premise is an empirical claim, one that requires experience to confirm, that you can't just do in your head. Is John a man? Is he unmarried? If John is, in fact, a woman, married or divorced, then our argument fails. Luckily enough for us, John is a man who has never married, and so our minor premise holds too. What this means is that without any doubt, we can say that our conclusion is true. Because our premises are true, and our argument is logically valid, our conclusion must be true, and we can be sure of that because we went through our argument to make sure. Modus ponens isn't the only logically valid form of argument, however. There is also modus tollens, the way that denies. Whereas in modus ponens, we affirm the antecedent to show the consequent to be true, in modus tollens, we deny the consequent to show the antecedent to be false. For example, if a man is unmarried, then he is a bachelor. John is not a bachelor, therefore he is not an unmarried man. Note that we aren't saying, therefore John is a woman, or John is married. We don't have the evidence to conclude either of those statements. All we know is that being an unmarried man is sufficient for bachelorship, and bachelorship is necessary for being an unmarried man. 
since he is not a bachelor, one or both of the conditions must be false, but which one would require further investigation? It's important to understand why this form of argument works. So let's take another example. If it is a cat, then it has whiskers. This animal does not have whiskers, therefore it is not a cat. In this case, if all cats can be said to have whiskers, then something without whiskers simply cannot be a cat. This is because being a cat is sufficient for having whiskers, and having whiskers is necessary for being a cat. As mentioned earlier, modus tollens is another kind of logically valid argument, but that doesn't mean that all instances of it are correct, merely that their premises lead to their conclusions. If the premises are false, then the argument as a whole fails. The most powerful part of this exercise so far is that we can generalise these two arguments to fit any premises with unknown symbols like you'd find in algebra. We call this standard form, and you can use it to quickly check that you understand an argument by replacing the symbols with the sentences in question. For example, modus ponens would be laid out like this. First, we write what part of the argument it is. A premise is labelled with the letter P followed by a number, such as P1, P2, and so on. Then you write the form of the premise without any specific argument in it, using letters to stand in for the claims you're making. Finally, you finish with your conclusion labelled with the letter C. Each new part gets its own line. P1 if A, then B. P2, A, C, therefore B. That's modus ponens written in standard form, and to make an argument you can just slot in your claims, replacing the letters A and B. Modus tollens is similar and looks like this. P1, if A, then B. P2, not B. C, therefore not A. Sometimes the letters P and Q are used in place of A and B, but it means the same thing. The important thing to remember is the versatility of these forms of argument. They crop up all over the place in philosophy, and even more advanced arguments sometimes have a modus ponens or modus tollens nestled in there somewhere. Before moving on, we've said that a logically valid argument might still fail if one or more of the premises are false. What might one of these arguments look like, and how would we know that it's false if it's still logically valid? Well, we've already seen one. Our cat argument is false. If it is a cat, then it has whiskers is a false premise. Hairless sphinx cats tend not to have whiskers, but they're still cats. This animal doesn't have whiskers, therefore it is not a cat, follows from the faulty premise, but because that premise is false, the argument as a whole doesn't work. The argument failing doesn't mean that the animal is a cat, however, just so we can't be certain of what it is until a sound argument comes along. But suppose we don't need to be certain. Suppose we were just looking to make sure that the animal probably wasn't a cat. For example, if we keep pet rats and we don't want the cats to eat them or something. If it's probably not a cat, then we're probably safe. Then we might say, most cats have whiskers. This animal doesn't have whiskers, therefore it's probably 
not a cat. With this argument, we can never count out the possibility that it may be a hairless breed, but we can be more or less safe in the knowledge that it's probably nothing to worry about. This kind of argument, that gives a probabilistic conclusion instead of a certain conclusion, is called induction, or inductive reasoning. The opposite, in which you get a certain conclusion, as in modus ponens and modus tollens, is called deduction, or deductive reasoning. They're both very useful kinds of argumentation, but only one can lead us to certain truth, while the other can only give us truth to a degree of probability. For this reason, inductive reasoning is seen as less credible. For an example of this, look no further than the black swan. The black swan is an example that comes from Nassim Nicholas Taleb. The story goes that throughout history, since the time of the Romans, black swans were held up as an example of something that didn't exist, similar to flying pigs today. It's easy to see why. No one from Europe had ever seen a black swan, so what evidence was there that one might exist? Since there were hundreds of thousands of white swans in the world known to Europeans, and not a single black one, it stood to reason that the only kind of swan in existence was white. This is inductive reasoning in action. You take experience, form a probability that there is a close to zero chance of black swans existing, and conclude in favour of whatever your experience points to. Of course, in 1697, Dutch explorers became the first Europeans ever to see a black swan during their expedition to what is now Australia, and the belief that only white swans existed was shattered forever. As it turns out, even a close to zero probability event can come true. The black swan example demonstrates perfectly the weaknesses of inductive reasoning and why it ought to be used with caution. There's nothing wrong with it, but you shouldn't forget that a probabilistic conclusion is far weaker than a certain conclusion, even with overwhelming evidence. Now that we've learned about logically valid arguments and the difference between induction and deduction, let's quickly take a look at some logically invalid arguments before finishing off with the branches of philosophy. There are two logically invalid arguments that we'll look at today. They're deceptively similar to modus ponens and modus tollens, so it's important to separate them out in your head. The first is denying the antecedent, which can be thought of as the flip of modus ponens. For example, if it is a tiger, then it has a tail. This animal isn't a tiger, therefore it doesn't have a tail. The reason this is invalid is because being a tiger is sufficient for having a tail, but not necessary. So it's quite easy to spot the problem here. Animals other than tigers have tails. This animal could be a dog, a lion, a sheep, and so on, and the consequent be true. The second logically invalid form of argument works in a similar way, affirming the antecedent, which can be thought of as the flip of modus tollens. If it is a tiger, then it has a tail. This animal has a tail, therefore it is a tiger. Having a tail is necessary for being a tiger, but not sufficient. There are many animals that have tails, and simply having a tail doesn't mean you are a tiger. The reason both of these forms of arguments fail 
is that they mistake sufficiency for necessity, and vice versa. In a conditional statement, the antecedent implies the consequent by way of sufficiency. A is sufficient for B. Conversely, the consequent relates to the antecedent by way of necessity. B is necessary for A. Because having a tail is necessary for being a tiger, being a tiger is sufficient for having a tail. Denying the antecedent mistakes sufficiency for necessity, and affirming the consequent mistakes necessity for sufficiency. As a result, these forms of argument are badly constructed and always fail, regardless of whether the premises are true, simply because the premises do not lead to the conclusion. Well, kind of. There are some arguments that take these forms that do work, but to talk about them we're going to have to get into the real nitty-gritty of philosophical jargon. You may have picked up on me using the word implies six sentences ago. In a conditional statement, the antecedent implies the consequent by way of sufficiency. Of course, in philosophy, words don't mean what they should. So when philosophers use the word implies, they don't mean suggests, as regular English speakers do. They're talking about a thing called material implication. Material implication is a connective between the antecedent and the consequent of a conditional statement. And it's what we investigate when we ask if the major premise of an argument is true or not. Really, we're asking if one implies the other. Expanding our if A then B reveals what we mean. If A is true, then B is true. The if-then relationship isn't one of causation. A doesn't cause B, rather A implies B, such that whenever A is true, B must also be true. Otherwise, the premise is false. Think about how we've tackled these questions so far. Is if it is a cat, then it has whiskers, true? No, because it can be a cat without having whiskers. A is true while B is false. There's no implication there. Material implication is the connective tissue that makes conditional statements true or false. And understanding how it works is necessary for seeing why some invalid arguments might still work. This is because, while material implication goes one way, A implies B, material equivalence goes both ways. Material equivalence occurs when something is both necessary and sufficient for something else, such as being an unmarried man, which is necessary and sufficient for being a bachelor, and vice versa. Material equivalence is usually written as if and only if. So we can say, if and only if a man is unmarried, then he is a bachelor. Plug this into our above invalid forms, and we have arguments that work despite being invalid. If and only if a man is unmarried, then he is a bachelor. Sarah is not an unmarried man, therefore she is not a bachelor. Here, we are denying the antecedent, yet the argument still functions 
because being an unmarried man is not only sufficient, but also necessary for being a bachelor. If and only if a man is unmarried, then he is a bachelor. John is a bachelor, therefore he is an unmarried man. Here we are affirming the consequent, but the argument still functions because being a bachelor is not only necessary, but also sufficient for being an unmarried man. Because being a bachelor and being an unmarried man are materially equivalent, either both must be true at the same time, or both must be false at the same time. There is no option where only one can be true and the other false. For that reason, some logically invalid arguments still work, solely in cases of material equivalence. It is nevertheless non-standard to make these kinds of arguments, however, and for the sake of clarity, you ought to change the argument around to make it fit into a logically valid form. Otherwise, you'll have people claiming your argument doesn't work simply because of the form it's in. That was a lot of jargon, so let's sum up. The two invalid forms of argument we've looked at are called denying the antecedent and affirming the consequent. These arguments don't work because they mistake sufficiency and necessity for each other, meaning that their conclusions don't follow from their premises. This is true in all cases of material implication, where the antecedent is sufficient for the consequent, but not in cases of material equivalence, where the antecedent is both sufficient and necessary for the consequent. Now we've got that straight, let's finish off by talking a little bit about the branches of philosophy. Philosophy has traditionally been divided into six branches. These are metaphysics, epistemology, logic, aesthetics, ethics, and political philosophy. Metaphysics is broadly defined as a study of the nature of reality. We'll be starting our look at metaphysics next episode with the metaphysics of mind, which is the study of what the mind is and how it differs from the body. Other important questions within metaphysics are the problem of universals, what makes all tables tables, for example, and the debate between realists and idealists. Is the world real or is it just a figment of our imaginations? We did a little bit of epistemology in episode one when we looked at how to define knowledge. Epistemology is all about knowledge, where it comes from, how it works, and how best to understand it. The biggest historical debate in epistemology is that of empiricism versus rationalism. Do we gain our knowledge primarily through our senses and experience, or through reasoning and study? We've done a fair bit of logic today, which as you can imagine is all about reasoning and argumentation. Logic is sometimes seen as its own field of study, since it is so foundational to so many different areas of research, such as the sciences, mathematics, and of course, philosophy. Logic gets so complicated that logicians, people who study and use logic, have developed their own written languages that resemble algebra to replace how illogical natural languages can be. It's a little difficult, but very rewarding, to learn about symbolic logic, since it gives you a new insight into how argumentation works. Aesthetics is the study of beauty, or the study of art. Within philosophy, aesthetics is more theoretical, 
asking questions such as what is art and what is good art. But every time you read or watch a film review or tell a friend that you liked this book or disliked that game for whatever reason, that's aesthetics applied in the real world. It's a far-reaching branch with many things to say about the stories we tell, such as history, propaganda, and rom-coms. Then we have ethics, or moral philosophy, which is one of the most hotly debated subjects within philosophy. What is right, what is wrong, and how can we tell the difference? Applied ethics looks at specific questions, such as euthanasia, abortion, the death penalty, and so on. More theoretical ethics looks at the theories that determine which actions are good and which actions are bad, such as utilitarianism, the idea that we should maximise pleasure for the greatest number of people with every choice we make. Blending ethics with metaphysics, we get meta-ethics, which is one of my personal favourite parts of philosophy, which looks at the nature of ethical facts, theories, and so on. Not so much what is right and wrong, but what is rightness and what is wrongness in themselves. Finally, we have political philosophy, which is sometimes grouped in with ethics. Political philosophy is a pretty straightforward topic, but it's also by far the most discussed. The biggest things happening at the moment in political philosophy are discussions about racism, post-colonialism, fascism, trans and sexual minority rights, and, as ever, economics. Political philosophy is probably the most influential branch considering the impact politics has on our day-to-day lives, and it will probably continue to be for the rest of humanity's existence. That about does it for the six branches of philosophy, but of course each branch has a hundred sub-branches, and each sub-branch has at least a few twigs, so there's no saying of how many topics there are. Ultimately, if you can think about it, there's probably some academic somewhere researching it. And if there isn't, pick up a pen and write something about it yourself. In this episode, we've taken a long look at basic logic, including logically valid deductive arguments such as modus ponens and modus tollens, logically invalid deductive arguments such as denying the antecedent and affirming the consequent, as well as inductive arguments and the meaning of terms such as material implication and material equivalence. Finally, we finished off with the six branches of philosophy and what each of them discusses. In episode 3, we'll be beginning our look at the metaphysics of mind with physicalism, the view that the mind and the brain are the same thing, and the arguments for and against it. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to Philosophical Investigations to be notified when the next episode is released. For transcripts, sources, and notes, go to the link in the description where you'll be able to find all of these resources for all of the episodes so far. If you have any feedback, questions, or replies, feel free to reply to the relevant article and I'll endeavour to answer to the best of my ability. Thanks for listening. (music) Thank <music> you.